So here's a, here's an invitation. Here's a question that I'm posing to you. Are you paying attention to what you pay attention to? Are you paying attention to what you pay attention to? The unexamined life is not worth living, so I ask you again. Are you paying attention to what you pay attention to? For as the psychologist William James wrote, your experience is what you attend to. Your experience is what you attend to. So are you paying attention to what you pay attention to? Charles Darwin said that attention, if sudden and close, graduates into surprise, and this into astonishment, and this into stupefied amazement. In other words, the stewardship of your attention governs your world, shapes your reality. Again, William James, your experience is what you attend to. Now we've, we've all heard this a thousand times in every self-help book and every guide to happiness and how to find happiness and how to find your passion and how to live uh, a life with purpose and meaning, you know, and how to cast aside the, the broodingness, the depression, the anxiety, the hopelessness, the meaninglessness, you know, how to move past our soul sickness. Um, how do we turn mere passing illuminations, these glimpses, into abiding light, as Houston Smith says. And the secret, it starts and it ends with the stewardship of attention. Simon Weil said absolute unmixed attention is a form of prayer. So I ask you again, are you paying attention to what you pay attention to? For your experience is what you attend to. And if you steward the contents of your mind, right? If you steward your interior landscape by being judicious about what you pay attention to, you become the playwright of your world, right? You exercise agency and volition. You realize that true freedom lies within. Right? They can take everything except this. So are you paying attention to what you pay attention to? I'm a signpost, guys. Right? I recently made a video about what, how to choose a friend. Right? You choose a friend by choosing someone who, who brings to your attention amazing things, right? Somebody who notices things, and by noticing the things and pointing out the things he notices, he brings things to your attention that enrich your world. So the same way you must pay attention to the people you hang out with, by really noticing whether what they notice enriches your life. You should every day think to yourself, am I paying attention to what I pay attention to? Because often our experience that gnawing anxiety, the helplessness and the hopelessness and the, the depression, the, the angst, it has to do with the fact that we're not paying attention to what we pay attention to. And I'm a signpost, signpost. I'm here to point you towards beauty, truth, freedom, love, and awe. I want to attend to those things that take my breath away. I want to steward my attention towards those transitory enchanted moments in which I am compelled into aesthetic contemplations face to face with something can measure to my capacity for wonder, as F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote. Right? I am here to point the way. This is a reminder, a bookmark, a post-it note that you're putting on your fridge to remind you what's important. Pay attention to what you pay attention to, and then decide 
right? Be the playwright of your inner life. Attend to music, attend to beauty, attend to nature, attend to those you love, attend to the incandescent miracle of being, attend to your interior landscapes, attend to the beautiful landscapes beyond. Attend, be judicious, be discerning, be curatorial, pay attention to what you pay attention to. And life, my friends, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, exists in individual moments. It is up to us to make sure the moments we pay attention to, right, are vast, interconnected, and grand. It is up to us to make sure that we make a masterpiece out of our lives, one that we would willingly live again and again for all of eternity. This is what we can strive for. So pay attention to what you pay attention to. And then point your attention to the light. Truth, beauty, freedom, and above all, love. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Look for the good in everything Look for the people who will set your soul free It always seems impossible until it's done Look for the good in everyone Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland and this is episode 693 Transformative Alchemy with Phoenix Aurelius, Part 1. Now, that long extended intro that you just heard was Jason Silva. Now, the music is a remix of the Beatles' Because by French artist Diderda, and I use that a lot because it's just simply amazing. But it was this message from Jason Silva that I really wanted to share with you today because I also think of myself as a signpost, mainly for myself, pointing my own attention towards those things that take my breath away, towards those intransitory, enchanted moments in which I am compelled into aesthetic contemplation, constantly stretching my capacity for wonder and awe. Because today's interview is one of those things that has absolutely stretched my capacity for wonder and awe. Today I sit down with a dude named Phoenix Aurelius. Now, a phoenix is a mythological bird that flames out when they mature. I mean, maybe you've seen this on Harry Potter. Harry? Professor, your bird, it has caught fire. Oh, and about time too. Folks, it's a phoenix, Harry. They burst into flame when it is time for them to die. And then they are reborn from the ashes. Ah. Fascinating creatures, phoenixes. They can carry immensely heavy loads and the tears of healing powers. It's an interesting metaphor. Now, what would make a creature be able to carry really heavy burdens? What would make your tears of compassion healing for yourself and for others? Now, this is essentially what Phoenix and I are going to be talking about today in part one of this two-part conversation because Phoenix works with living things. He burns them to ash. He transforms them into essential oils and tinctures and spagyrics to create healing and enhancing elixirs. 
And this process of transformation has lessons not only for material transformations, but for spiritual or emotional or psychological transformations as well. And Phoenix is possibly the most articulate, intelligent, thoughtful person that I've ever talked to. So you are in for a real treat today. And it's going to start in just a minute. But first, let me encourage those of you who have considered supporting this podcast on Patreon in the past, but just haven't gotten around to doing it yet. Let me encourage you to get around to doing it, especially if any of you are interested in hearing my experience sitting with a shaman in multiple ayahuasca ceremonies, because I'm recording a series about those experiences that are being released as Patreon-only sharing time episodes. There's four of them up there at this point. There are going to be more. So if you're willing to contribute the cost of a cup of coffee per month to support my efforts with this podcast, please find this episode on infantsonthrones.com and click on the link to join Patreon. I would really appreciate it and will continue to be a signpost pointing the way to things that uplift and inspire me, like a phoenix rising from the ashes of a Mormon faith crisis. And now I give you part one of Transformative Alchemy with Phoenix Aurelius. All right, so Phoenix Aurelia. So let, let me let me start by um, first thanking you for taking the time to come on Infants on Thrones. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you. And uh, I I was pointed in your direction maybe two or three weeks ago by a, a common friend that we have, and he sent me three podcasts. I listened to one and a half of them. I didn't listen to all of them, <laughs> but immediately I just was entranced not only do you have a, a fantastic voice for for this sort of thing oh, thank but you. just your wealth of knowledge um i don't know i I'm, I'm gonna fawn over you a little bit which i think will make both of us feel a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> yeah so, oh, boy. so probably i'll stop but but uh let me just ask you to introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners of infants on thrones who are you you're an alchemist what does that mean and uh, what do you do Okay, perfect. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, my name is Phoenix Aurelius, and I run the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy. And uh, I guess my, my technical descriptions of what I do, as consolidated as possible, would be uh, I'm a researcher, I'm an educator, and I'm an alchemist. Uh, the research portion of my work, I basically dig uh, historical cures and remedies and medical philosophies out of the the past, typically things that are somewhat dead. So I have to go into the realm of, you know, archaeology and sociology and, you know, anthropology and really try and get an idea of what the cultural context of these practices were and so on and so forth. And then I test them scientifically um, in modern laboratory settings or in a clinical setting uh, using my research clients. And so our research organization is not a 501c3. It's just an organization that deals with uh, being able to test these things and the way that we can do that because, you know, there's no pharmaceutical companies giving grants for any sort of work like I'm doing. So basically the way that I do it is that uh, people self-fund their own work. They say, hey, yeah, I'm a volunteer. And then we say, well, cool. Do you want to fund your own work? And the answer is, yeah, you have to to continue. And so that's, that's the way that we're able to provide all of this information and bring things back to life and find alternative uh, cures and herbal cures and all these other things. 
um, utilizing a, a modern sociological structure. So everything on my website that's available for sale, all of the uh, IDF work and, and wellness consultations and all of it, everything that's available on the site all really helps to fund the research. So, so tell, tell me a little bit about how you got into alchemy. It, and it was a, a library in Utah that you walked into, right? Yeah, well, so I got into alchemy like very haphazardly. I was in computer lab in high school, happened to find uh, an old JPEG image of like an eight and a half by an 11 sheet that said how to make a spagyric tinkster. And I printed this off and I was following the instructions uh, on that flowchart for a couple of years. And then finally I met with uh, one of my friends who was much older than me. And she said that, hey, listen, um, what you're doing there is beyond herbalism. It's actually alchemy. And there was, or maybe even is, she told me, a school that was uh, in Salt Lake City that you might want to go ahead and check out. <laughs> and lo and behold, yes, it was in Salt Lake City, uh, but it closed two years before I was born. And mm. so I ended up trying to find all of the students uh, that were still kicking around and doing things. This was probably about 2005 that that happened. And uh, in 2007, Dennis William Halk and the International Alchemy Guild threw the first uh, International Alchemy Conference. And so I was able to meet a lot of people and uh, they had a reunion actually of the students of Frater Albertus. And so pretty much all of them that were still alive and kicking and able to travel and stuff uh, were there. And then I ended up inheriting a library from Frater Albertus's uh, office manager, the guy who taught here in Salt Lake City. So I was able to, um, through fate and fortune and just like persistence, dedication, following that trail, able to really acquire some really rare and unique resources. So could, could you describe, like in, in talking about what alchemy is, yeah. what are some of the popular misconceptions that people have when when they find out that you're an alchemist or that you're involved in alchemy yeah and sure and then what is it really <laughs> yeah that's that's a really great question so uh, most people in the modern age actually have a great respect for alchemy but when you say you're an alchemist they typically tend to think that you're on some new age fringe like uh, herbal tonic drink maker or they will sometimes think that uh, you have like a psychological proclivity towards, you know, doing Carl uh, uh, Jung style analysis and things like that from a psychological angle. Um, other people are like, it's lead into gold or it's protochemistry. Like you're wasting your time. You don't even really know enough about it to say one thing or the other. So those are usually the things that I get. Um, it depends on how conservative or like really close down the state or the area that I'm in is though too, because in the South, a lot of people, they hear the term alchemist and it just automatically equates to devil worship or, you know, whatever <laughs> it goes, like, you know, this drastic, uh, drastic turn. But um, yeah. So w what is alchemy really alchemy uh, as I practice it and as, as we can define it for the purpose of this conversation is an authentic Western tradition of working with plants, minerals, animal materials, metals, etc., cetera, uh, and, and providing either an exaltation of those things, like changing their nature drastically to a point where all of the dross has been removed or all of the excess has been removed, or else performing a transmutation on things, which is to say to change its nature so drastically that it's completely altered 
uh, it, it's a nature, it's no longer even recognizable as the same starting material. Um, and, you know, really when we talk about alchemy, especially in the West, there's no one per particular tradition that's ever been followed. There are dozens and dozens of authors throughout every different time period that we have to look at. You know, we can go to the Egyptian alchemists and then after the Egyptian alchemists, then we, we see that the Arabs kind of took it over. And before that, you know, there was even a Greek tradition, an ancient Greek tradition of alchemy before Egyptians got a hold of it. And then, you know, it makes its way from the Arab era into Spain and into France and eventually to England and almost the whole of, of Western Europe uh, and became really popular during the Renaissance. And uh, those techniques are not lost. In fact, they were preserved by the Rosicrucian tradition. Um, you know, we do have Rosicrucians uh, here in the United States as well. And this is primarily where the, the laboratory traditions, plural, got kind of preserved. And chiefest among those were the philosophies of Paracelsus. And uh, it's Paracelsus's work that I particularly abide by and follow and study with great vigor because he was also an amazing healer and doctor. And so... Uh, were, were the Rosicrucians a secret society, kind of like a Masonic order? Sure. I don't know much. Of, I've heard the name. I don't really know much what Rosicrucians were or are. Okay. Yeah. So the Rosicrucian order was uh, more or less a hermetic order that was created, you know, roughly the, the dates are actually highly contestable from actual uh, archaeological evidence or, or historical timeline, but they're said to be uh, really prominent in the 16th century, so sometime in the 1500s, and they uh, basically are like a mystical sect of Christianity. So they incorporate the Kabbalah, they incorporate, you know, uh, what is called magia naturalis or, or natural magic. They incorporate a lot of different things into their practices, but they're not necessarily uh, like a secret order. Um, it's, they're even more exposed, historically speaking, than Freemasonry. So, mm -hmm. but they've always been around and they're uh, at least these days, and I don't know how long this has been true, I know that it was true in the early part of the 1900s, though, uh, is that it, it isn't just a fraternity or a sorority, both men and women are allowed to join and move through the ranks. Yeah. So let, let me tell you a little bit. I, I mentioned before we started recording um, that the tone of this podcast, Infants on Thrones, has changed quite a bit since the beginning, and the things that I'm mainly interested in now. I, I wrote a book that I published uh, in August. It's called Bathing with God. And th the idea behind it, I, I attended an ayahuasca ceremony about two and a half years ago, and there were people there talking about source energy as if like source energy was divinity. Yeah. And of course, at the time, I was very skeptical and like I didn't want to hear anything that was even remotely godlike. But the more, you know, the experience that I had with that ayahuasca ceremony and then thinking about it more, I started thinking about energy and, and recognizing, okay, well, wait a second, that this materialist worldview that I've had or that I've adopted for so long really ignores the fact that at the heart of every bit of matter is this energy, atomic energy or subatomic energy or whatever. We, we're all energy. And so when I heard you on those podcasts talking about energy and talking about transmutation and changing from one form to another 
I just got so excited. <laughs> I got so excited. And, and the parts of what you do, uh, aside from the spagerics, and I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, you did. The, the, the tinctures and the things that you make, but also like a, a, a transformation of, of heart or soul or mind or just yeah. a, a human refining process that, that parallels what you do as an alchemist. And knowing that you're in Utah, I imagine that you interact with a lot of Mormons or ex-Mormons. Oh yeah, every day. And so interested to hear what, if any, transformation stories you've had or, or how this idea of metamorphosis of energy can, can go from talking about elements to like people to you know, anything uh, like that. You probably have a million different directions that you could take that question, but uh, I'd, I'd like to hear your riff on it. All right, cool, man. Yeah, that's a, that's a fun question, actually. And something that's really unique to my work, too, being in Utah and doing this work, because, you know, you're in Florida or, you know, New York, you're not going to be able to be so um, heavily dominated by just one particular culture. So, yeah, at any rate, um, in about 2010 through 2013, maybe a little bit longer, uh, I used to teach regular workshops several times a night. Uh, or sorry, several times a week in um, Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, there's this cool little metaphysical uh, shop there called Crohn's Hollow that had this huge room and we would just, you know, get tons of people in. And uh, a common course that I would teach was called uh, Embarking Upon the Alchemical Path or sometimes also called Transpersonal Alchemy, depending on the year and the season, mm. you know. You got to spice things up, shake it around a little bit. <laughs> people, you know, they get too used to what you're doing. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, I would go around and, and teach these classes. And the main thing was instead of getting people, cause at that time I, it was like pushing a ball up a hill to get anybody to step into the laboratory today. You know, you, people are knocking each other over in line in order to be able to do it. But you know, just something shifted the availability of all that shift in the last few years. But at that time, Nobody was interested in lab work. It was way over their head, too much of an investment, had no interest, et cetera. So I would teach the psychological and spiritual aspects as one thing and draw upon the imagery and the actual processes that happen in the laboratory and demonstrate those processes. But it's primarily for a spiritual and uh, psychological uh, journey for the individual. And it's really... It's usually like a 10-week course. You have like three weeks of kind of opening up into things and, you know, giving people enough background information to know what it is that they're even doing, what context to be able to see things from, and things like that. Uh, and then seven weeks, uh, one, one process each week of the seven primary alchemical processes um, that are, deal with calcination, dissolution, filtration, evaporation or crystallization, uh, extraction, uh, distillation and coagulation, putting everything back again. And these seven processes basically separate out the body, the spirit, and the soul of any given thing. And so soul comes from the Greek word psyche, which means psyche uh, in, in English. And basically the psyche is the component of the soul that handles all of our thoughts, our expressions, our desires, our intuition, you know, all of those types of things. Your spirit is really your discipline and the amount of energy that you have to go into uh, a particular thing. So, you know, like for instance, if you're a, a warrior in the, the military, then your discipline is 
the things that you do to be a warrior. You know, you end up making your bed every day. You end up, you know, being nice and neat and tidy. You, you have all of these things that were instilled into you by the service um, that basically create that, that predisposition towards building spirituality in a very particular way. So your spirituality really is what you do regularly in order to build up willpower through discipline. How much willpower do you have to be able to bring the volition of the soul or the psyche into, into being? And then finally, you have the body, and the body is really just the mechanism or the vehicle that all three of these things can, uh, can ex exude in. And so, you know, during that time, we had people who were fresh out of FLDS uh, compounds and things like this who would come to us, as well as, you know, just your typical, quote-unquote, typical run-of-the-mill uh, I'm out of, of Mormonism now, uh, kind of seekers and stuff. And, you know, the biggest thing that I think that I saw was, you know, when there isn't a church giving me purpose, when there isn't like my, my whole life, everybody has had callings. They've had yeah. kind of what they're told to do, what they're directed towards doing by the community, by your family, by you're, you're, you're taught very much so how to believe and what to think in a certain regard and how to go about life. And so when you walk away from that, there's so many things that it was like, you know, you always had somebody taking care of something for you. So you, you, now what do you even do really yeah. with, with your life? Like, what's the purpose of your life? How do you go about doing it? You know, how do you act? Is it and who do you trust? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Who do you trust? Because, you know, the the main mindset is man i was just tricked you know yeah. I, I bought into this illusion for you know 25 years 35 years 45 years depending on the individual and here's where i'm at with it is like how do i know that anything is even real mm -hmm. so yeah we would see cases like that all the time to repositioning the focus or the orientation of that person's perception um, in such a way that they were able to define what they want their lives to be. They gave themselves permission to be able to even find out what to do after, you know, after God doesn't exist or whether that's an irrelevant point or, you know, what it is that they do want to move towards, if not, you know, another type of Christianity or another, you know, replace the word God for the word universe, you know, replace prayer for meditation, replace, you know, all this new age mumbo jumbo that's going around. So, you know, we, we always leave that to a hundred percent up to the individual because every path ultimately leads to the same destination. So we don't care about the variances. It's about the processes that they use to navigate the variances of that terrain from their own perspective. And that's what really makes alchemy so adaptable and so usable is that you have these archetypal processes that literally apply to every situation in life. Uh, whether we're talking about the laboratory or a psychological spot or, you know, a midlife crisis or, you yeah. know, it doesn't matter what it is, anything uh, alchemy really applies to. Are these those seven processes that you referred to earlier? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, basically step one is create a crisis. It's called calcination. It's the archetype of fire. You create some sort of crisis in your life by realizing and recognizing some of your faults. And when I say to realize, I mean literally to make them real. Are we still together? I think yeah. I lost you. Okay. No, I'm here. There we go. Yeah, so we call them realizing because we're literally making them real. And what we're doing is we're acknowledging that 
of the faults that we have for why we are the way that we are, are really just due to justifications and belief systems that we have created that basically crystallize the material into being that way or crystallize your feelings about yourself in such a way that they're very difficult to bust up. Are you familiar with the term samskara? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Is that what, I mean, is that equivalent to what you're talking about here? This crystallization of patterns of thought, patterns of expectation, belief systems? Yeah. Think, it, things I like, things I don't like, things I want more of, things I want less of. Yeah, exactly. You could consider any of the genre of samskara to be things that are eligible for calcination. Okay. And... So, you know, you, for instance, you might have um, some sort of lingering health problem and holding on to too much weight or, you know, something, something like this. Yeah. But you have this belief system that maybe you're not attractive or worthy of a good uh, partner because you're fat or you're overweight or, you know, this is a common one that we see all the time. Um, you end up developing a belief system and reinforcing it with the, your, your state of perception on almost every instance that's ever happened. And it's not based actually on anything other than the emotional, uh, emotionally influenced perception of that individual. Yeah. And it keeps reinforcing the behavior. And in fact, you know, there, there's really two, two ways that things happen. One is through yourself telling yourself a certain narrative and buying into it. The other is through others, you know, inducing a narrative that is essential to your survival such that your adaptation, your evolution co-evolves with that type of, um, dare I say, abuse uh, or, or self-abuse. Or, say that again. Self-abuse. Yeah, it could be self-abuse. And it's also like abuse uh, imposed upon you by communities. You know, like, for instance, within most churches, not just the LDS church, you see narratives being constantly pushed. Anything that is said like frequently, like a prayer or anything, reinforces the egregore that is imposed upon that person or that they're, they're paying their energy into. But that egregore is what really guides the way for how that person is going to continue living their life and what they believe and how they believe and how their narrative and perception kind of is influenced altogether. You, you said the word egregore? Correct, yeah. I've never heard that before. I love it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So egregores are really important. In fact, if there's only one thing that people did after listening to this, it's like research and egregore by Mark Stavish's book. It might oh, it's be ne with an N, negregore. Oh, egregore. I, oh, I think I said okay. N, egregore. Oh, okay. All right. Too fast. Egregore. All right. Egregore. Yeah. E-G-R-E-G-O-R-E. -E, egregore. And basically what that is, is it's a thought form uh, typically that involves a lot of belief, which is to say thoughts and emotions coupled together, creating uh, a crystallized belief system. And when more than one person believes that same thing, now an egregore has created and an egregore exists in the astral plane. So it's basically just, you know, if you wanted to talk about this in, in modern psychic terms, we would call this a construct, a mental construct um, that realistically just has its own potential to develop its own energy and, and, and uh, personality and spiritualism and all these other things. So like, for instance, um, Glenn, have you ever been part of a group that when the certain members of the group have left the group, how the entire nature of the organization itself changed? So like directing mm -hmm. members or something who are really big in something suddenly fall out. And then 
like everything shifts about the yeah. nature of it. So egregores are the very same way. They draw energy from the people who are involved in them. And they really draw their energy from the emotional uh, kind of vindiction that people have or vindication that, that people have. Um, and that's, that's how these things are, are created and sustained. And so if people don't believe in anything that is, you know, also believable by somebody else, if they're constantly walking their own path and just finding their own truths and, and things like that, then you don't typically tend to find these types of, of constructs there. But every time that you see a logo, any time that you hear any sort of advertising, any time that you think of somebody and you know that other people think of that person in the same way, you're tapping into an egregore. You're, mm. you're uh, in the astral plane, basically just accessing the file that actually corresponds to the physical being that you're trying to identify. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about astral planes later, but I, I, I want to get through these uh, seven steps and so the first one was calcification and if calcination. i if i recall right or calcination and right. that's when there's a crisis that's created or a crisis that's that's realized um and and the equivalent of that in um in in the alchemy is is what that's where we're taking an herbal material we're burning it down with fire All right. and we're we're getting it to as light of an ash as possible so okay. you know after an herb's been extracted or essential oil distilled most people think that it's dead, but realistically, we burn it away and we access its ash. And from its ash, there's an essential nutrient that can actually be revivified, that can be recrystallized. Um, and you know, the way that the old dudes used to think about this was very biblical. Uh, very biblical. They would say that uh, the whole process of of calcining the salts is like uh, Jesus dying and descending into hell for three days. Um, being, you know, baptized again, coming back into the flesh, and then, you know, ultimately being completely assumed back into heaven, but, you know, resurrecting on that third day, completely corporeal, uh, but perfected in such a way that he could no longer be heard or so on or whatever, you know, you know, the whole Christian story about this. Sure. Um, they would say that this is exactly the archetypal process that we're looking for when we're working with our salts. And so okay. you were basically starting the process uh, of burning away all of the material that is not absolutely essential to the medicine or that cannot regrow. Because if I take a dead plant, I stick it in the ground, can never grow another plant just like it. But if I take the minerals that were stored in the ash from that plant, I can regrow the minerals into a perfect crystalline matrix uh, that would have been the basis of how the plant grew in the first place. And so this is where that process starts. That's fascinating. Okay, what, what's the second step? Yeah, second process is called dissolutions, where you take the ashes and you dissolve them inside of, of water and basically just bring the water to a boil so that the uh, essential minerals that are locked up inside of the ash can actually be separated from the ash themselves. Uh, and, and that would lead us to our next step. But this process psychologically really deals with releasing the repressed emotion that um, is in the way. So like, for instance, in, in the first step, you get rid of all of your justifications, belief systems, and that leaves you really raw. Okay. That leaves you in a, a space where you're not actually okay. You have feelings just like people do when they walk out of the Mormon church. Like, you know, I was betrayed. I was lied to. I was, uh, you know, in many cases, it doesn't even start off like that. It's usually more like, you know, they just didn't have the same values that, that I had or, I don't feel like they're living the principles of Christ or the apostles and so on and so forth. And so 
there's this all of these emotions regardless of where you're at and what the narrative is that gets brought up and you don't know how to process those emotions typically and so it just becomes repressed emotion but once you're burned down and you have no more justifications there's no more belief systems the floodgates really just open and this is where a person really has to handle all of those emotions and leech them from their body and in fact it's sometimes said that the our emotional energy is like water inside of the body and when the water is actually brought to a boil through frustration excitement uh, especially in feeling raw or vulnerable and so on and so forth and what ends up happening is that it actually dissolves the ash of all of the memories that you have chosen no longer to to abide by or live by and when you cry that's why your tears are salty it's actually extracting out the the minerals in the very same way that we see it in the laboratory where you have a salty solution uh, with ash at the bottom of the little container when you're done with the dissolution process. So dissolution is the second process. Second process, and it's taking the ashes, dissolving the ashes into water. So then the third process is, is very simple. It's just filtration. It uses the archetype of wind. And basically, you know, you've seen that wind creates a, a very separational force. Any, anybody who lived through the hurricane-style winds this year that came through Utah uh, would definitely know that, or anybody who's ever seen uh, ripe fruit on a windy day just fall off the tree. It separated the fruit from the tree very well. Mm. Or a pile of ashes as the wind comes through it and blows and disperses the ashes everywhere. So this is really an archetype of, of filtration or separation. And in this case, what we're separating or filtering out is the ash material, which is typically black or gray or, you know, as, as light, pale white as you can get them for ashes um, from that mineral rich solution uh, of dissolution and we would call that our solute and once the solute has been filtered we now call that a filtrate and so this is basically just uh, infiltration separating a filtrate from from the ashes um, or what doesn't actually dissolve so psychologically, what this deals with, though, is creating a separation of the lifestyle habits, friends, environment, etc., that have led you to the place that you're at that you don't particularly enjoy and would like to break free from and just release all of this repressed emotion about. Um, this, this is where most people get caught up because they will make very drastic changes in their life instead of something that is a little bit more practical. But if they go towards something that's a little bit more practical in their life, like changing the five main people they hang out with to be people that are moving in a direction that they also like, because the psyche works that way. The five people that you hang out with have the largest psychological um, influence upon your character. Uh, that works through the, the, well, not even necessarily completely, but at least partially it works through mirror neurons. So that being said, um, changing your environment, not putting yourself into the places or the situations that you were in, you know, three months ago, like if you were still going to, if we're talking about somebody breaking out of church uh, and, and out of that thing, you can't keep going to the family dinner where every single person in there is LDS except for you, because at some point it's going to create contention. And it's, it's just one of those things that until everything's been sorted, and out of the way and laid to rest, it's not a smart environment to be in because it's going to keep bringing up these old wounds. And in order to- It's like going back to the first process over and over again, right? Over and over and over again, because it keeps 
your life circumstances at that point through your decisions are instigating a crisis. And it's trying to tell you, hey, listen, your ashes didn't produce very many salts. You should just calcine again and calcine again and calcine this ash again a couple more times until you finally get it. And then eventually, you know, those ashes are, are fine enough that you can do a dissolution quite easily. Um, but yeah, for some people, it definitely does, you know, it, it just cycles them back through that process. Um, so you have to really put, put yourself in situations and surround yourself with people and do things that are moving you towards goals that you actually want to realize in your life, which it is, which is to say that maybe you don't even want to be completely free of the church per se. You just want to be completely free. You know, you mm. just want to understand who you are and have the freedom and the volition to do you. Yeah. So, so if that you is choosing to walk line and step with what the church is saying, you're free to do that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, like I said, there is no pathway as bizarre as it may seem from everybody's individual perspective. There's actually no pathway that ultimately doesn't lead to the same destination. And so being able to give people the freedom to do exactly what they want to do, just so long as they're not harming anybody else in, in their doing it. And when I say harming, I mean harming against somebody's will. If it is somebody's will to be part of a situation that from your perspective appears to be harmful, that's not your decision to call that harmful. Mm. It has to be harmful from all perspectives, mm. uh, meaning that the person inside of the experience doesn't want it. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, with that being said, though, uh, after you filter, you have this filtrate and you just evaporate that, which leads us to our next stage of crystallization. If you evaporate slowly enough or under the right conditions, then you're actually able to grow crystals of all of that mineral that's been dissolved in the water. And in the vegetable kingdom, this is primarily potassium carbonate. And so you see potassium carbonate forming uh, in all these uh, different ways. So that's the way that this process of crystallization happens in the laboratory, but the way that it looks in the, the you know, tangible realm or the psychological realm is that you set your sight on goals and actually work to achieve them and build your discipline so much that there you go. Now you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish, but this will still inevitably, pardon me, inevitably leave you feeling unfulfilled in life. And the reason is, is that no matter how much you know, how much you achieve, how much you experience today, uh, tomorrow a deeper embrace can always be had. And if you're alive, you're going to do that. That's the very nature of, of evolution. So when you started off, you could say, oh, man, if only I was free. Well, eventually over time, by surrounding yourself with the right people and the right circumstances, the right situations, you will find that you have developed either new belief systems or eliminated as many belief systems as possible and allow them just open, you know, allow your experiences to be open to perceptions um, and have ideas and thoughts, but not necessarily beliefs. Um, but that's still going to be like, okay, now I'm free. The question is to do what? So, so I think the step we're on is crystallization. Is that, that's four or five? That's four. Four. It's four. And when I'm thinking about what you talked about, how these minerals, they, they start to crystallize it. Like I'm picturing it like they're growing. It, yeah. it's, it's almost like an organic reproduction. Um, how, how does that happen? What is that process of crystallization? Because a, a crystal is just like a repeated pattern over and over and over again, right? 
Yeah. I don't well, I'm, you're showing me that, that crystallization there. Yeah. So what am I looking at? Those are actual vegetable salts that have crystallized just by being evaporated slowly. And so um, I'm not sure if uh, the light in here is actually appropriate, but there's all sorts of glistening facets to these, mm. just like any other crystal. And um, this is at a pretty rude phase. I can actually get this infinitely uh, cleaner, but that's basically what you're looking at is, is a crystallized mineral form. That, and what I mean by crystallized is that it has taken a formation that has precipitated some of the material that was formerly dissolved inside of the solution. And it's actually started to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and grow as a living thing. So, so those, those crystals, those, the, the, they're, they're minerals that were extracted from the ash of vegetables and now they're growing in a crystalline structure. If you, if you, and that's a dehydrator that you have them in. Yep. So if you left them in there indefinitely, would they just continue to grow and it would be like the chicken heart that grows and eats New York? <laughs> no, actually, uh, there's only a certain finite amount of minerals that were dissolved inside of that water. So the amount of minerals that you get is really how many uh, minerals were extracted by the water during our second phase of dissolution. And so when you evaporate it, only the amount of minerals that were dissolved can actually show back up. And so it won't just continue growing. Uh, so it's not like reproduction, like bunny rabbits. It just keeps growing and growing and, and reproducing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It okay. doesn't do that because the laws of fertility would actually dictate that there needs to be some sort of insemination, whether that's right. <laughs> asexual reproduction or sexual reproduction. And it doesn't do that. But if we were to take a tiny little seed crystal from this batch, and create another supersaturated solution. As that supersaturated solution was starting to cool, we throw that seed crystal in. Now it will make uh, crystals in the image of how that seed crystal was forming. Mm. And so uh, the mineral kingdom does have procreation, definitely. We can see it in the laboratory. It just abides by a different uh, way of, of thinking about it in a certain regard, but it's not that much different than uh, insemination for humans where you take a seed and put it inside of fertile ovum, you know, yeah. but in the mineral kingdom, super saturated solution is the ovum. So did I hear you right that you said that those crystals were living? Yes, you did. Yeah. So they actually grow to a certain point. And then just like most other individuals, eventually they begin to oxidize. Okay. So w whether we're talking about animal life, human life or anything, we ultimately deteriorate largely because of the oxygen in our environment that causes oxidization, like oxidization of cells in the animal, vegetable, uh, and, and human realms, of course. So they, these minerals will also oxidize. When they oxidize, they no longer are forming a living crystal. They're actually dying out. And when they've completely died out, they're brittle and they can be ground to a, uh, to a really fine powder. Boy, I... I don't know if I want to go down this rabbit hole much further, but I'm so interested in, in crystals as living things in this. Like, do, do they, do they breathe? Do they excrete? Do they move? Do they no. have any of those characteristics that they are don't. typically this is where, life? This is where modern science actually differs from alchemy. Alchemy okay. doesn't define what is living per se by a set of really goofy rule that somebody <laughs> came up with in a scientific right. laboratory, you know, just thinking like, Oh, what is, what is it to be alive? These are, then it becomes one of those, what was that word again? Uh, 
egregore so it becomes like this really massive egregore this worldview that everybody shares that this is what life is and anything outside of this arbitrary definition is not yeah exactly well and it it actually prevents science from being as effective as it can be because science really is just a method of observation that is very like if i do this and if i do this and i think it through and i do it like this then will this happen you know yeah. that's basically what you're looking at in the development of your purpose your hypothesis you know develop developing and understanding your variables and controls of course and then you know outlining the experiment and then performing the experiment drafting up your conclusions and so you know the modern scientific method is is awesome for so many things actually where it's it's kind of become perverted in the modern day is that people have decided to take what science has found through its method of observation and confuse the method of observation itself for oh if science says this science doesn't say anything scientists do using right. that yeah. method yeah. and you know, it's really important to understand, like, if I look at something and you look at something and we're in t- completely different areas of the room, we're probably going to be seeing different things. Yeah. The same thing is true with any sort of observation. And so, you know, science is just a method of observation. And the more people that can, from their own lens, utilize the scientific method of observation to view the same thing and they come to the same, you know, answer, they come to the same conclusion what that would indicate is that it is most likely true based on the data. And if Mm. people could really think about things like that, then they would realize that we are still in our infancy of utilizing the scientific method and calling things people scientists is okay, but it's not okay to utilize the egregore of a scientist in order to derive your belief system from, because that's not the nature of science at all. It's about finding out. And and it seems like, when there's when there's new better data then the uh whatever the hypothesis is is adjusted and it seems to me that we're still in our infancy and being able to perceive everything that's actually out there all of the different variables that go into things which i think you would have a very unique perspective in with the way that you interact with uh and i don't even know what to call it as as an alchemist yeah You, you see the way that you can transform energy and matter and have it start off as one thing and end up something completely different. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically an alchemist would consider that crystals are living. Mm-hmm. Are they living crystals and minerals living based on modern scientific definitions? No. So depending on which area you want to perceive this from, uh, there are two entirely different answers. Yeah. Well, not only am I going to want to talk to you about astral planes, I'm going to want to talk to you about consciousness eventually too, but let's get through the seven yeah, let's just, we'll <laughs> processes free up first. These last ones. So the, the next process after you've worked with the body, so the body of something is really important. That's the corpus, the, the, the mm-hmm. main material that you is really dense. It's hard to transform. So those first four processes work with the body. The next process uh, really is a phase of extraction. And this is where we get to our sulfur. Um, so our, our sulfur is our soul, and this is where we extract the soul. There are two grades of soul. There's a fixed soul or a lower soul. And then there's also the, the higher soul or what we would call the volatile soul. Um, basically 
the fixed soul is like your hair color, your skin color, the clothes that you wear, you know, the organizations that you belong to, all of those types of things that color the personality of who you are. Whereas the volatile soul is more like your inherent talents, interests, and purpose. So those things um, are, are uh, you know, they're considerably different, but they can come out in the extractions differently depending on what extractions you do. Essential oil extractions are going to just isolate the volatile sulfur, the higher soul. Uh, tincturing um, material might pull out a little bit of both, okay? Uh, typically a lot of, of fixed sulfur or, you know, personality based on, on your identification, your ego, things like that. So every different process that we do in the laboratory works with a different part of our soul. Um, and the same thing can happen when you are performing uh, soul extraction at home. But typically what this looks like is a dark night of the soul. So, mm. you know, if you were fat, you broke all your old habits, you changed your diet, you did all these things in the last process. And eventually you did that for so long that now you're like really fit. And maybe you have uh, become like a personal trainer or something like that, but you're finding, well, I'm not really fulfilled doing that. That's great that I can help other people do what I did, but I'm bored. I want to do something different. And this is where the dark night of the soul comes in. It's like, ah, I'm doing everything that I can. I've already overcome so much and there's still so far left to go. And really what ends up happening is that you, you sit around and you invert for so long that you come out on the other, other end with new inspiration, new life, new dreams, new volition, you know, new, new ideas that, that need to be enacted. And these really show you what you really are trying to hanker after. But a wise man will not try and go after the dream the way that it comes to him, but rather try and isolate the feeling of the dream and to be able to try and live and embody that feeling of, of what it is that you had in that dream. Um, so for instance, you know, I had a dream that I wanted to own my own metaphysical store, you know, many years ago around the time my daughter was born. And uh, I happened to find just such an opportunity to do that. And so we created this awesome place and, you know, had the awesome marketing and the highest caliber website and all these other things. And I hated it. I hated paying the people to do the website design. I absolutely couldn't stand our accountant. <laughs> um, there, I, there are so many aspects of that job that were wonderful. But what I really wanted was I wanted to feel like I had the availability to reach out to people and to be able to sell spagyrics and an outlet to teach things. And, you know, all, all these things that I'm doing now, but I don't have a metaphysical store, nor do I need one in order to do what I'm doing. Um, and so, you know, I, if I really would have gone after the feelings and how to embody those feelings, it would have saved me a lot of time and heartache. But again, nothing changes without some sort of catalyst or transformation. And even in pulling essential oils or fermenting a substance, it goes through some very unsavory processes from the perspective of the plant. You know, with fermentation, you're being eaten away by microbes. And with essential oil distillation, you're literally having steam pass through you until your essence passes out of your body. So... It's not a, a very fun <laughs> experience, but you, you come out the other end of it with these really uh, great elaborations on, on what will fit your talents and your interests best. It, it almost sounds similar to that first process where there's a crisis that has been 
created and, and this is this is the fifth one that you, you've 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 arrived you've gotten where you thought you wanted to be but then you get bored of it and there's still more to go and it's almost like a mini crisis is that right yeah absolutely it's a crisis it's a crisis of what am i doing with my life basically yeah. and what do i yeah. want to do with my life and so, so and so in your in your case with your store you had this 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 dream to have the metaphysics store and and it was this feeling of of joy or like the joseph campbell follow your bliss or however yes, you want to talk about exactly. this 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 feeling and there were things about it that you loved interacting with people teaching but there were other things about it that you hated <laughs> the dealing with the people the accountant yeah and so following your bliss it moved you through the store to where you are now all part of that process all part of following this feeling yeah and, and the, the reason i kind of want to highlight this here is because i know of a lot of people that have gone come out of the Mormon church really have a very negative view towards feelings Yeah, because feeling was the way of confirming truth. You feel the Holy ghost. It'll confirm the truth of all things to you. So then they're like, well, I'm not going to trust my feelings at all anymore ever again. But here you are saying your feelings will guide you (laughs) to try, try, you know, follow that bliss, recognize the things that aren't working for you, the things that are and go in that direction. Is that right? Absolutely. But here's, here's the clarification. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is ironic. This example with the Mormon crowd, uh, you know, or even ex Mormon crowd, but let's just run with it. Is that if serving coffee and drinking coffee is the dream that comes to you and the feeling that comes to you from, from this whole process of extraction, then what you really need to dive into is go deeper into the feeling actually of how it makes you feel to, Think about, you know, making really gourmet coffee or having really gourmet coffee served to people or other things. So instead of you actually becoming like, say, a barista or or owning your own coffee shop or other things by following the dream itself, you follow the feeling of the dream because the dream will make you feel nostalgic. It'll maybe make you feel happy. It'll make you feel alert. See, the brain operates, the subconscious operates to our conscious mind utilizing symbols. And so coffee is the symbol. What you need to do is consciously decipher what that coffee makes you feel. And when you can get clear on that, then it's really time to move to the next level. And you could try to move to the next level sooner. I did. And, you know, you fall on your ass literally every single time because you're following the dream. And the dream has so much excess superfluous stuff attached to it it actually hinders you from achieving what it is that you've set out to achieve because the whole goal of life, the whole concept of fulfillment upon death is based upon the principle that you feel fulfilled in the way that you have gone about your life. It has nothing at all to do with what you actually did or said, or it's how you feel about it. Mm. And so you have to have something to measure that by some code to measure your life by in the perspective of your own feeling. And this is where, you know, everybody will actually find the happiness that they want and find their, you know, quote unquote nirvana so much faster. If they simply get to the the concept of what I'm doing in life matches how I want to feel about what I've, I've done. And yeah. that, that brings about instant satisfaction, gratification to the psyche every time. Beautiful. All right. What is the next process? It, is, does it involve some, some more burning, getting rid of that 
Well, kind excess of excess and dross. Yeah, the next process would be uh, fermentation and distillation, where you're making spirit. And this is basically a discipline because first you have to ferment the material, and you have to you have to cultivate the discipline of patience in order for the ferment to even be finished. If you try and shake it all around and open it up and look into it, you're going to ferment vinegar instead of of alcohol. And so, in the process of of fermentation you have to be patient right up front but then you develop even a greater sense of patience and persistence um, through the distillation process because eventually you take that ferment and you distill it and the first time you distill it you distill over maybe 80 percent ethanol okay and that's if you're doing really good might be even less than that the second time you distill it goes up again probably closer to 90 percent ethanol third time that you do it you know 95 percent ethanol so on and so forth but as alchemists, we always distill things seven times. And that's because we want it to what's called a philosophical purity. Uh, the seven planets, seven chakras, seven, you know, there's lots of different correlations of people. Seven horcruxes of Voldemort. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's right. not forget that. Because <laughs> the, old, the old alchemists were definitely like astral projecting into the 2000s and being like, right. <laughs> let's include the seven horcruxes. It'll be, right. it'll be hot in 600 years. So... <laughs> So with that being said, um, there are all of these correlations, actually, that um, everything that we do has a planetary observance to it, or it, it mimics the cosmos in some way. You know, alchemy is the first form of biomimicry. So that's all that we were doing is finding out how does nature perpetuate itself? How does nature release the spirit of things and transform the spirit of from one thing to another and so on and so forth. And by doing those in a small scale environment, we were able to create what we now look at as laboratory work. But chemistry has been so separated from laboratory work because it's more or less soulless. It doesn't care what it's doing. It's really just combining things to create new things. Whereas alchemy was intentionally separating out the soul, the spirit, and the body of a material and then putting them back together in a way that it actually enhanced or exalted the, the nature of that thing or put them back together in such a way that it actually transformed the nature of that thing into something that's no longer recognizable as the starting material. And so this process of distillation is really working with uh, purifying the spirit and the spirit is a discipline. So what you end up doing based on how you want to feel and doing the things that make you feel the way that you mind from your last process, that's the trick. It's not about living the dream like your last uh, process gave you this dream. It's about taking those feelings. And now, like, let's say that your feeling is, I want to feel fulfilled at the end of every day of work. I don't want to feel hollow or like I didn't make a difference. Great. Think about the things that you can do that are going to make you feel that way and start doing that, you know, every day. And at first it's, it's going to be really small stuff. Okay. It's going to be like, well, I can get a little taste of it if I do this. It's great. It's just like a muscles discipline is, is yeah. that at first you have no discipline. You start really small. Like I tell people, set your alarm clock and don't lie to yourself. Meaning that when the alarm goes off, don't hit snooze. Wake up with the, uh, that alarm. Now you've started building your discipline and saying, I trust myself enough that I know that what I want and how to get there is going to be based on me telling myself something and following through with it, you know, having that self-trust. And so 
start there and then make your bed every day. And then, you know, and these little lifestyle hacks like that build your discipline enough to the point where eventually you can actually start doing disciplines that manifest your will, which is to say, what are going to make you feel fulfilled in life? Really, truly, and actually no shortcuts. And, um, that's, that's this, the, the phase of distillation. And then the last one is coagulation. So at this point, we've done through the first four processes, we've extracted our body. Through the fifth process, we've extracted our soul or our, our uh, sulfur is what psyche. we call that. And yes, yeah, exactly our psyche. Uh, we call that sulfur in alchemical uh, cosmology. And then uh, through the sixth process, our spirit. And now the time has come to add those all back together again to create the exaltation. So this is you with your physical body actually performing things daily through disciplines that manifest quite literally the, the, ex, or the uh, volition of the soul or the psyche and what's going to make you feel fulfilled. And so by the time we come out on the other end of all of this, people who go through the class, regardless of their walk of life, have a massively huge change, uh, so much so that people will literally see them in the grocery store that they knew, you know, just three, four months prior, and now they're suddenly unrecognizable, not necessarily because they physically or physiologically changed appearance, but literally their, their aura, how they carry themselves, what their life is about, everything is so different. It's like, oh, wow, seems yeah. like a similar person at a glance, but totally different, you know, when you get into the nuts and bolts. And, and I, I would imagine that this seven step process doesn't happen just one time for a person, but could happen multiple times over and over again. That's the thing. It's just like this process. That's life. And yeah. the more series of evolutions that you walk yourself through, um, you become much more distinguished and much, much better, much finer, much more ref refined as a material, as a being. So, you know, it's important to not look at this as a linear thing, but something that's constantly cycling, constantly feeding through your life and driving the evolution of you. See, but here's, here's the great thing about alchemy is that once you recognize the process, you'll recognize that various aspects of you are stuck at one or more parts of this process in your entire life. So if you were to break down all the components of you and lay them out, you know, in a list, is like some of them are stuck at dissolution. Some of them are stuck at calcination. Some of them are stuck at, you know, fermentation or extraction, you know, some of them uh, at distillation, some of them, you know, you've got all the pieces, you just need to recombine it kind of thing. So, you know, there are thousands of different aspects of us. There's no end to the evolution that we're going to experience as an individual. Learning to embrace crisis as an opportunity for conscious evolution once you know the process is really what's so empowering about learning and, and understanding and incorporating alchemy into your life. I, I love that. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Keith, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. 
and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets light, destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this Welcome to Bathing with God. Listener Mailbag. Listener Mailbag. Hey, Quad. Hey, what? We have another listener question. Yes, I know. This one comes from Nick. Nick says, Hey, Glenn, I'm loving your Bathing with God podcast. I just thought of a question for Quad. Have you ever asked Quad about the Akashic Records or Astrology? How are they so precise and accurate? Thanks. So, Quad, tell me about the Akashic Records and Astrology. How are they so precise and accurate? Are they? I don't know. Nick seems to think so. Well, that's part of your answer right there. A pretty big one, too. What is? That Nick thinks they are precise and accurate. It's called confirmation bias. Everybody has it. Everybody does it. It's the tendency of people to interpret information based on their deep-seated beliefs and to turn a blind eye to anything that might contradict those beliefs. The assumptions, beliefs, and expectations that you have about the world around you determines your experience. It is why psychologists and New Age weirdos alike say that your thoughts create your reality. A better way to say that is that your thoughts create your experience of reality. And Nick thinks Akashic Records and Astrology are precise and accurate, so they are, for him. Yeah, that sounds a little dismissive, Quad. I'm not sure Nick will like that answer very much. Really? What is dismissive about it? You're basically saying that they aren't really accurate, but since Nick thinks they are, he's fooling himself. Are you sure that's what I'm saying? I don't know any other way to take it. I see. And what does that tell you about your own confirmation bias? No, we're not going to turn this onto me again. There are a lot of people who claim to give accurate information from astrology and the Akashic Records. They predict things that don't come true. They make claims that are just flat out impossible or wrong. It's not always precise and accurate. And that can't just be because of what people expect to believe. There are real frauds and con men out there who prey upon beliefs like this. You really believe that strongly, don't you? I don't have to believe it. It's just an obvious fact. I bet that you see a lot of confirmation for that obvious fact, don't you? Yeah, I see what you're trying to do here, Quad. But you're not going to convince me that I'm wrong about this. How could I? You're firm in your beliefs. So firm that you don't even recognize them as beliefs. This is exactly what confirmation bias does. Great, so you're saying that I'm foolish now. Slow down, big guy. I'm not calling you foolish. But I see why you would think that. The term confirmation bias is often used by skeptics as a weapon against believers. You've had it used against you that way enough times in the past to develop a sensitivity to any accusation of having confirmation bias. 
But any honest skeptic would have to admit that if confirmation bias is a real thing at all, then it is a real thing for everyone, for them as well. Confirmation bias simply means that you see what you believe is possible to see, and you don't see what you think is impossible to see. Of course, what you think is possible or impossible is actually irrelevant to the objective existence of outside reality, but it is very relevant to what you allow yourself to see about that outside objective reality. So no, I do not think you are foolish. It is never foolish to believe that things that cannot be proven to be impossible are possibly possible, even if they may be highly improbable. And the Akashic records and astrology cannot be proven to be impossible. So there is nothing foolish about being curious about what they are and open to hearing more about other people's experiences with them. Okay, fine. I, I honestly don't really know much about the Akashic records or astrology. So, quad, as my divine imagination, can you show me what my confirmation bias is blinding me to? Can you paint a world for me where these things have some real, tangible essence that could be considered precise and accurate? With pleasure. Let's start by examining your worldview. That is where your confirmation bias is coming from. So tell me, do you accept that everything is energy? I accept that everything is made from energy, from electrons and quarks that form different kinds of atoms, the basic elements of nature, and that those atoms form everything else, but that doesn't mean that everything the atoms form are energy. What is it then? How can a snowman made of snow be anything other than snow? Well, because my flesh and bones are made from atoms, but they're material things. Solid, tangible matter, not ethereal energy. That is your confirmation bias talking again. The words and concepts you grew up with formed a deep-seated belief in your psyche that there is a difference between energy and matter. But that difference is strictly semantic. It is only a distinction in words. And those words are only describing different forms and manifestations of energy. There is no material in existence that is not, at its very core, energy. Energy acts in different ways, in different contexts. You see ample evidence for that in all the varieties of things that you directly experience every minute of every day. Fine. So just for the sake of moving forward with this, let's say that I accept that everything is energy. What does that have to do with the Akashic Records or astrology? Well, if you accept that everything is energy, and you imagine that energy as a winding, twisting, bubbling sea of different kinds of atoms that make up your body and everything around you, then maybe you could imagine a world that is, essentially, pixelated. Like the tiny pixels in a photograph, or on your computer screen. All of existence is a sea of pixelated energy interacting with itself. One continuous flowing field of interconnected pattern of energetic pixels. Can you imagine that? Yeah, it's kind of like what Neo saw in the Matrix. Sure, if that helps. Still, what does this have to do with the Akashic Records or astrology? Patience, Iago. I'm getting there. First, you need to readjust your worldview to understand that everything fits into this sea of energy. 
that all of this energy exists in swirling, pixelated patterns, and then add time to it, the flow of time, one moment to the next. If you freeze one moment, you see where the atoms are in space and time, including the atoms that are you and all the pixelated energy of all of the things in the environment immediately around you. Then, advance the frame to the next moment, and the next, and the next. You can imagine this energy pattern moving, right? Sure. But that movement is an illusion. It is a result of how the energy that is doing you has evolved over millennia into eyes and ears and nervous systems that detect a minor sliver of all of this energy's oscillating frequencies within a certain range of conscious awareness through your sensory organs, but also evolved to be absolutely blind to everything else outside the frequencies you cannot naturally detect. Part of this means your sensory organs perceive time as a constant rate of forward motion, moment to moment. But as Einstein correctly intuited, all time exists all the time. Every atom in its place in time, every energetic pixel, in every position and every location in every frozen moment of time, whether you wind it forward or backward or simply experience it all at once, as several other forms of life have evolved to do that you are simply not aware of. Because everything that exists has its own unique conscious experience of what it is and what it is doing and how it fits into this sea of pixelated energy. These pixels themselves, through their own awareness, form repetitive habits of behavior, interacting with their environment in ways that form clumps groups of pixels cooperating together, cooperating to create other clumps of other conscious entities, atoms becoming molecules, molecules becoming proteins and cells. You can look in a science book and understand the way that atoms ultimately cooperate to create the cells and organs that make you a living, multicellular organism, but you have no way of knowing what it is like to be each of those atoms or cells what they experience, what they feel, what drives and motivates them to do what they do that result in everything you see around you. But they do exist, and they do interact with their environment, and they do learn from that interaction, and they do store a memory in the form of intelligence, and they use that intelligence to evolve into everything that you see around you, as well as everything that you do not. For within this massive sea of pixelated energy that is only partially visible to you, there are many other forms of intelligent, living, existing, experiencing clumps of energy that exist outside of your narrow range of perception, but crisscross and intersect with your daily realities in the same way that millions of neutrinos pass through your bodies without any conscious awareness. So now imagine every one of those pixels and the data and experience they experience being frozen in a single moment of space-time, existing as it has always existed, as it will always exist, all time existing all the time, which also includes infinitely expanding alternate realities. Anything that could possibly be imagined exists within the fabric of this pixelated energy field, even if only in the form of the unique 
energetic snowflake pattern of firing synapses that form within a human mind. You have a constant fireworks display occurring in that electrical storm you call a brain. And that fireworks display in your brain is just as much a part of this sea of pixelated energy as everything else. And it also always exists all the time. That is what the Akashic Record is. That is why anything that can be possibly imagined by the human mind can be considered to be real. It either exists as a real series of firework display synaptic firing thoughts in a human mind, which also includes larger patterns of synaptic firings when thoughts are shared by multiple human minds, or it exists as one of the infinite alternate realities which would logically be a part of an infinitely expanding multiverse where every potential iteration of the pixelated energies exist all at once. But for today, let's just chalk it all up to the power of human imagination to push the boundaries of imagination itself. Uh-huh. So, the Akashic Record is... Imaginary access to that tiny slice of everything called the human collective unconscious, dialed into focus through confirmation bias, by a genuine belief in a metaphysical record of all things, powerfully fueled by a beautiful, courageous, artistically acrobatic free-fall leap of faith, soaring high above the chasm of uncertainty, alight the wings of imagination. Well, that's clear as mud. To those who have ears to hear. And noses to smell. So, what about astrology? What about it? How is it possible? Or even accurate and precise? For the exact same reasons I just so eloquently stated above. If you do say so yourself. I do. But this might help with the astrology bit. Imagine that you have created a large quilt, made completely out of threaded beads. You and three of your best friends hold this beaded quilt at all four corners. Imagine that each bead is an atom, or a molecule, or a cell, or a multicellular organism like humans, or a solar system, or a galaxy. Each bead is a clump of patterned energy. And when you and your friends shake the four corners and move rhythmically in patterns, twisting in all kinds of directions, like the regular natural cycle of wave-like patterns of energy as it cycles its twisted way through the universe, through space and time, like the ocean flows in predictable tidal rhythms due to its gravitational relationship to your moon. You and your friends' movements are doing this to your beaded quilt. Now, freeze the frame. And imagine that one of those beads in the center of the quilt represents the unique clump of energy that is you. And the place it is frozen in space is the place where you were born. And the time when it was frozen is the time when you were born. And the position of you and your friends in relation to that bead is like the position of the planets in relation to you when you were born. Astrology shows you the blueprint of the universe at the time that your clump of energy brought your conscious awareness into this universe. As you and your friends resume your patterned rhythmic dance, the bead that is you moves up and down and in and out just as you do on the planet Earth as you spin around your sun in a solar system that is spinning around in a galaxy. Astrology observes that rhythmic motion and remembers the patterns based on the relationship between various clumps of energy. 
It is also a guess. Also an art form. Also a way of finding, creating, and expressing significant meaning into the world. These are not ways to predict the future. These are ways of inner self-examination. These are ways of waking up to the truth of who and what you really are. An energetic clump, an energetic bead in an energetic ocean, dancing, all bits and pieces of you existing all the time, forever. Dude, what have you been smoking? Nothing but pure imagination. Want some? Thank you for listening to Bathing with God. If you like what you just heard and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. And if you really, really like what you just heard, share it with someone you love and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. You can also like our Facebook page, and subscribe to the Bathing with God YouTube channel. And if you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can email me, Glenn Osland, at bathingwithgod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And probably so would Quad. Oh yeah, bring it. Thanks again for listening to Bathing, Bathing with God. God.